Welcome to the Maritime Executives Podcast Series, In the Know. I'm Tony Munoz, Editor-in-Chief. Our Executive Corner Podcast will provide conversations with top executives concerning events and issues that are shaping our industry today. We will also bring you up to speed with the latest news and editorials covered by the Maritime Executive. Welcome to the Maritime Executive Magazine's podcast series, In the Know. I'm Paul Panecki. In this episode, Senior Marine Risk Consultant Andrew Kinsey of Insurer Allianz joined me for a conversation on the biggest risks facing shipping today. These include outsized casualties involving ultra-large ships like the Ever Given, container fire disasters like the Express Pearl and the Mars Conam, and the growing risks posed by crew fatigue as the crew change crisis drags on into its second year. For the details, listen in. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Paul. Hi, how you doing? Oh, just fine. Yourself? Good, good. Thanks so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, I read your report with great interest. First off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work at Allianz? Well, I, I grew up in a maritime family. Uh, long history in Merchant Marine, and I kind of followed in the family tradition. I, I sailed deep sea for 25 years, including 13 as master. And then came ashore in 2006 and transitioned to marine transportation and supply chain loss control. And in 2014, I joined Allianz as a member of their global risk consulting team. Okay. Uh, And can you tell us a little bit about Allianz and its business in the maritime industry? Happy to. Allianz Global Corporate and Specialty, they provide global marine and shipping insurance for a wide range of marine risks. Uh, We go everything from single vessels and shipments to complex fleets and and multinational logistics businesses. We also have significant uh, project cargo expertise where we do infrastructure development and improvement globally. Perhaps we can start off with a discussion about vessel size and outsized risk. So the number of vessel casualties has gone down markedly over the past decade, but the biggest losses have gotten bigger with increasing vessel size. And of course, uh, this comes with very big headlines and big costs as well. Do you think we're approaching the maximum safe dimensions for box ships and rows and other large vessels? Well, Paul, some may feel we've exceeded that. And the real driver of this is that the large vessels present unique risks and it makes responding to incidents more complex and expensive. But there's also a trickle down impact because as those large vessels, the ultra large container ships go into the primary hub ports, then what had been the largest vessels then start to go to the secondary and tertiary ports. So, The economy of scale that vessel operators realize is not an equal economy of scale to all participants in the supply chain. Ports and the infrastructure that supports the vessels while in port are strained to the breaking point in some cases. Can you give me any examples of particular ports that might be worrisome as secondary or tertiary ports that are now receiving vessels they were never designed to receive? Yes, if we start to look at some of the things down in Central and South America, or even some Mediterranean ports, we start to see that infrastructure gets stressed. And if whether it be high winds or high seas or just the amount of volume, we had the recent container ship breakaway in the Far East where the vessel was shifting, took out the, the gantry cranes and berts on the double OCL ship. 
So the margin for error just gets smaller and smaller when we start to put these larger and larger vessels in what's a confined space. And while we can dredge deeper and raise bridges, it's very rare that we can make the footprint of the port larger. And is Allianz starting to see more claims related to this phenomenon? We're starting to see claims activity. More importantly, we're starting to see overall supply chain disruption because it's a trickle-down effect and it's, it's you know, kind of like domino. When you have one impact and that's shut, then it impacts both the supply lines and rail lines, trucking lines and everything else. So it's a delicate balance, which, which COVID has pointed out in, in some dramatic instances. In order to keep the supply chain efficient and moving, all aspects of it have to work in harmony. Sure. And so the, the biggest headline of all this year, uh, The Ever Given, really illustrated the mismatch between these ultra-large vessels and older and smaller infrastructure. But it also showed a, a new and perhaps challenging risk, um, long-term detention by the port state in the aftermath of an incident, uh, coupled with, in this case, an ultra-high demand for penalty payments, an unprecedented nearly $1 billion penalty. Um, do you see this form of government intervention or interference as a, a one-off, or is this a, an ongoing financial and operational risk? Well, admiralty law has a long history of rules that outline the grounds upon which a ship may be arrested. And, and while the rules themselves may vary by different countries, there are common ground. And we're talking about damage to cargo caused by the ship, damage to a collision to another vessel uh, to protect maritime liens, in which case can be damage to infrastructure. But if we look at the overall government interference in, in shipping safety, that also isn't new. And when we look at the issue in Panama, in some cases, it reflects what we've seen on some of the detentions or lack of access. In this case, it's a it's a keeping it in port, but in other cases, it's been a refusal of entry for a vessel safety issue, which was the case with the Erica, the Castor, Prestige, and Maritime Maisie. And so there's been a history of, I would say, government interference in shipping safety for a long time. Have the, as you mentioned, the size of the claim against the other given was historic, but well, as we start to deal with larger and larger vessels and larger accumulation of risk and accumulations of value, it won't be the last time we see this. So you can foresee another circumstance in which a very large vessel gets into trouble and the port state or the coastal state makes a very large demand for payment for, say, environmental damage or, as in the case of Suez Canal, reputational harm? Yes. And we also will see, as we have already seen, that the vessels, as they get into trouble, are denied places of safe refuge. And, and that's an interesting distinction. You notice I said places instead of ports. That change was made as a result of the growth in vessel size. It's no longer a port of safe refuge. It's a place of safe refuge recognizing that many of these larger and larger vessels cannot actually enter the ports, but look for a bay, a harbor, or a place of safe refuge. Container fires continue to be a leading source of catastrophic risk, especially for the very big ship. What can strengthen prevention measures and firefighting resources to address this challenge and get out in front of it? 
Well, the key issue is keeping the cargo from getting on the vessel in the first place. That's that's the, the key. Now, modern container ship firefighting does need to be improved for the safety of the crew. It, it, it has to. It, it does not. The firefighting capabilities of the vessels have not kept up with vessel size. However, we have to do a better job of keeping the hazardous materials that are improperly or misdeclared, improperly stowed off the vessels to begin with. And that's the responsibility of everyone in the supply chain. It's not just on the shipping companies. It's This can't just be left up to the ship. It has to be the freight forwarders, the container stuffers, the ports. Everyone has to take a role in this. If we look at the National Cargo Bureau's white paper of 2020 that did a extensive inspection initiative, this gives us real hard data for the first time. When we've been out at sea, we've known it's been a problem, but we didn't have any hard data to go back to. The National Cargo Bureau's initiative showed that 43% failure to secure dangerous goods, while 55 of the containers inspected were non-compliant. And six and a half percent were carrying dangerous goods that had been misdeclared. So in that snapshot, that forces the question that we need to be doing a better job of inspecting and policing this and keeping that improperly stowed cargo off the vessels in the first place. And that will be the biggest step we can take in preventing shipboard fires. It sounds like from those numbers that this really starts with the shipper or the forwarder packing the container uh, more than anything else. So what can we do to enforce the rules and ensure that any malfeasance or any accidental mispacking gets caught before the box gets on the ship? Well, there's a couple of things. One is education, making sure the people stuffing the boxes know the rules. Because you mentioned malfeasance. Some of it is ignorance. Now, the bad actors, the malfeasance, that's the most difficult. But we can begin to address, as we say, the low-hanging fruit. Start by educating them, understanding what needs to be done. Then reinforce that with spot checking. The problem with that is we need to address the just-in-time profile of our supply chain. But if we've seen anything out of the last 18 months, it's that that just-in-time supply chain needs to be rethought because at present, it's unsustainable. So if it were slowed down a little bit, there might be more time to check boxes and make sure that everything is in order? Exactly. And so once it gets on board and there is a problem, it's up to the crew and, of course, any nearby coastal state or port state to address it. The fire on the Express Pearl likely started from a leaking container of acid. Several ports refused to let her crew offload that hazardous cargo for cleanup and repacking. They did allow her to enter the port, but once she was in there, she was not allowed to take the container off and address the problem. So do port states need to do more to provide that sort of, I don't know what you might call it, unloading location of refuge uh, when something starts to go wrong with a container cargo? Well, Paul, I would refer to it as, as basic infrastructure to support the vessels. And this is the issue. The ports provide tremendous gross national product input into a country. If we look at where the banking centers of the world are, they're next to the custom houses. Traditionally, the customs house was where the money came from because that's where the cargo was coming in. So it's nothing new. We've seen 
New York develop as, as a shipping center, as a financial center because of shipping. So, but we have to start to tie that benefit that shipping brings to a locale with some duty and responsibility to support both the merchant seamen and the vessels. Now, the IMO Assembly adopted an IMO resolution, resolution uh, A949 that set out some guidelines on places of refuge when a ship is in need of assistance, but the safety of life is not involved. There's already SOLA, so when the safety of life is involved, we have one set of rules. But when the safety of life isn't, but safety into the environment is, this is something we need to revisit. Because as we see from the devastating environmental impact, we're all stakeholders in this. And it really needs to be brought up to another level. And personally, I feel the IMO needs some more enforcement behind it. Right now, the resolutions, while they're on paper, don't always carry the greatest uh, enforcement. And as you mentioned, it, it seems like it's very much in the port state's interest to provide resources to address these problems before they get out of hand. Uh, the disaster off the coast of Sri Lanka uh, had a, a devastating environmental impact and probably could have been addressed if the ship was admitted quickly to the port of Colombo for um, repacking or if she'd been allowed to repack the container at previous ports of call. Um, so it seems that in addition to the, the necessity of enforcement, which is, of course, I'm sure very real, that it should be in the, the port's self-interest to try and, and assist shipping to resolve these issues early. You would think so, but you get into the bureaucracy at times, and, and that's where things get bogged down. Makes sense. Uh, and maybe that's where enforcement might help, that there would be a rule and it wouldn't be so much a matter of debate. Yes, I, I feel that that's where the answer lies. Rather than worrying about passing more, enforcing what's currently there and give it some backbone, make it so that there is a, a benefit or a consequence and, and just to enforce the current resolutions that are in place. So switching gears a bit, the crew change challenge is very difficult for seafarers and of course their families. And it also brings added risk for shipping. From an insurer's perspective, is it concerning uh, if the crew has been on board for far too long? Well, Paul, this is an issue that we at Allianz have been tracking closely, and we have a, a large contingent of former seafarers in our ranks, and it's something that is uh, near and dear to my heart because I still have family out there, and I've experienced it firsthand with, uh, with my youngest son who uh, was recently sailing most recently signed off last week as an ordinary seaman. So it's something I track both professionally and personally, and we're in the middle of a crisis in this regard because we are not supporting the crew and we are going to lose both the current and the future crew members. And, and that really is one of the keys. We're not supporting the workers. And as a result, the industry will suffer. Is Allianz seeing more losses that appear to be related to fatigue uh, related to crew change, mechanical failures due to human error or near miss incidents, other indications that this is, is trickling down into additional risk? Well, the first one that comes to the spotlight is uh, the Washeka uh, grounding off Mauritius. And while that is the first incident, I do not believe it will be the last because it takes a while, as you know, Paul, to fully understand the root cause of accidents or claims. So when we start to look at machinery failure, was that as a result of COVID with the supply chain because the spares weren't on board? Was it 
an impact of maintenance and repair and that the crew was too fatigued and they either didn't do it or didn't do it properly. So when we look at root cause analysis from shipboard incidents, it's very rare that we can point to a single overriding factor, but we continue to see crew fatigue being a concern. It's something we look at when we do our risk modeling of accounts and we look at exposures, we look to see how they're supporting their workers, how they train them, how they retain them. Because Paul, the one thing you mentioned was, yes, the crew that's on board getting fatigued. We also have to remember that there's another manpower pool, the crew that's currently on the beach, on vacation, waiting to go back to work, who is out of work and they'll find other employment. Sure. And um, that sort of is circular, that it might make the crew change challenge worse. How do you think the crisis will affect recruitment of future seafarers? Well, we're hearing reports, and I have serious concerns for the next generation, because at present with the COVID-19 situation and crew change, we, we aren't carrying the extra billets. We don't have the cadets. We don't have the entry level. It's down to the bare bones of who we can keep on board. So we don't have so many of the cadet billets. And and the maritime industry is something that relies on a apprenticeship. You go out in the entry level and you see how it's done to learn how to do it properly, and then you rise up in the ranks. So when you lose those entry levels, or when you have a situation that's so dire that they're out there for over a year, you're losing those entry levels. And, and one of the keys to understand here is that we're on the cusp of a new generation of seafaring, because as we hear about these, on the same breath, we hear about all the autonomous or automated operations that are going to be coming. Now, when we look at automated operations on board a vessel that's manned, we need a new skill set for the future seafarer who's both responsible for doing the traditional maritime tasks, but also has the mindset to adapt to and incorporate the new generation of IT-based learning and implementation. And that's something we rely on, on a new manpower pool and, and young thinking, to be honest. Sure. And I'm sure that will be essential as that transition occurs. And as the Delta variant spreads, do you expect the difficulty of crew change to increase again? It's already a challenge, but uh, we've heard anecdotal reports from ship managers that crew change in certain localities and for seafarers of certain nationalities has become much more difficult. Uh, Do you see this on the rise once more? Yes, just as we see the Delta variant closing down ports in Asia, China, we also see the outbreak in uh, Australia. Now, we see crew changes being suspended. We see moratoriums being placed on Filipino and Indian crews that no longer can conduct crew changes. So we really need to take care of this and we need to make sure that we are treating the seafarer properly, that we have them vaccinated, And as the IMO has urged, that we designate the seafarer and port personnel as key workers. We have to raise their visibility. And it's the entire supply chain that needs them. It's not just the shipping companies that need them. Everyone, as we've seen in this this past saga of COVID-19, everyone depends on ships. So it's the entire supply chain's duty and responsibility to raise this issue. 
so that other uh, consistent and persistent menace to shipping, um, West African piracy, has had a, of course, a long-running effect on seafarers in the Gulf of Guinea. Um, can you tell us a bit about uh, Alliance's view of the scope of these casualties and the potential exposure for insurers? Well, at Alliance, when we have an insurer that is going to be transiting those waters, we work carefully with them to plan the routing in, in any piracy-prone area, including the Maritime Bureau's uh, routing guidelines to stay more than 250 miles, northern miles off the coast, and then routing for a direct high-speed transit into the port during daylight hours. But personally, I was first boarded by pirates off the coast of West Africa in 1982. So the problem is not new. I've, I've dealt with north, south, east, and the west coast of Africa in my maritime career. And it's a issue really of underlying social, political, and economic problems. And until we address those, and until those are further addressed, then the piracy issue will continue to manifest itself as an occupation of last resort, really. Does piracy impose additional costs on um, ship owners or operators who have to transit that region in terms of insurance, in terms of the potential for kidnapping payouts? Are there extra costs that this this imposes on shipping? Oh, there's there's extra costs, most definitely. And it, it goes down to even the vessel operating profile. When you're transiting an area that's piracy prone, it has an additional cost on the morale and welfare of the crew as well. You have to work longer hours. You have to have extra watches. You have to work outside, but normally two hours in front of and two hours behind your normal watch to augment for doing rounds, both at you know bow, stern, and sides, because you're trying to make a defensive posture. You want to be the hard target. So you're dealing with increased crew responsibilities. You're dealing with increased stress. So there's fatigue involved. So when you do get into port, you're dealing with the potential for a fatigue crew, which then raises the specter of additional incidents, accidents, and damage. So there are both direct costs and there's also hidden costs. Luckily, these pirate attacks have subsided a bit in recent months. Um, thanks, it seems to enhance Nigerian enforcement measures. Do you think that this law will last? Or as you say, it's been an ongoing problem since the 1980s. Do you expect that there is still a risk of resurgence? Yes, I feel that enforcement can only go so far. The root cause needs to be addressed. And until those you know, political and economic issues, shore side, are addressed, that will continue to raise the danger to offshore navigation. That makes sense, unfortunately. Uh, and so your report also addresses the, uh, the, the impact and the risk of extreme weather. How is extreme weather affecting claims? And is this uh, expected in, in your forecast to worsen with climate change in future years? Yes, uh, climate change volatility is, is increasing. And at Allianz, we see it in a number of ways, both as cargo losses and also vessel damage. If we look at the high incident of cargo being jettisoned, washing over the side in the North Pacific this past year, we see some common threads, and one of them is adverse weather conditions, fully loaded large container vessels transiting the North Pacific route in the winter. So we can point directly to that weather incidents or severity there as a contributing factor. 
But we also should look at things such as the, the severe winter storms in Texas that impacted not just ports, but also trucks and railroad with freezing weather. And then last year with the hurricane season being so severe and so much rain washing out both closing ports, leading to uh, silting and, and shallowing of ports, but then also washing out of rail lines and deterioration of trucking routes. So these these are all interconnected and it's all pieces of the infrastructure puzzle in the U.S. that's being adversely impacted by severe weather. Climate change is also opening up an interesting opportunity for shipping, the new routes to the north of Russia and maybe to a lesser extent, the Northwest Passage north of Canada. Uh, What will ship owners, coastal states and other stakeholders have to do to manage the risks of these new navigating areas in the Arctic? Well, well, Paul, the the Arctic shipping routes, uh, I find to be fascinating because we navigate the same routes as Magellan, really. Um, to see a new shipping route open up in my lifetime is, is groundbreaking, really. It's, it's unprecedented. So the sailing in the Arctic, though, poses a number of unique risks. It is unpredictable extreme weather. The daylight hours, long periods of darkness, the remoteness of those routes. If anything goes wrong, you're a long way from any help. The lack of infrastructure and emergency responses. So the industry really needs to respond with a different way of managing these risks. And also, we have to look at different ways of training for these risks. We're in an age where we collect so much data, both the micro and the metadata. We we, we we can collect so much, but we're not fully utilizing it. And what we really need to do with this is to start to look at a different way of training our seafarers. My son now, who's attending Maine Maritime, is being taught the same way that I was taught, which is the same way my older siblings were taught. And that's we always study maritime casualties. We always teach to the don't do this model. We are not capturing enough data that we can teach to the do this model. We can teach to a safe model. And the reason why this mentality is important is in the Arctic, there is a serious shortage of hydrostatic data and charts for all the waters. We really need to understand what the safe route is. We need to capture that and disseminate it quickly. Not the slow, methodical, plodding way that we've done international maritime organization resolutions in the past. We need to be reviewing this on an every six month basis and saying, this is the latest, go this route at this draft, you'll be okay. And this is where utilizing, fully utilizing and incorporating a data, a black box of vessels is really critical. The impact this will have, we already see Russia attempting to develop more of the North Sea routes to bypass Suez. We just saw last week, they're looking at an inland route through the Caspian Sea from Asia to bypass Suez. So the choke points that we've seen that are Achilles heels in the modern supply chain are known to all. So we're going to start to see some very interesting outside the box thinking on how we're going to address this, whether it be a new canal in Nicaragua, an inland route on the old Silk Road, or a North Sea shipping route. 
Well, these are exciting times to be entering shipping, and uh, your son will have uh, a very interesting career going forward with lots and lots of change. Um, and, you know, I think this will be exciting for the rest of us to watch as well from shore and, and see how it unfolds. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time. This has been very insightful, and uh, I'm looking forward to sharing this with our readers. Why, thank you, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to In the Know, the Maritime Executive Magazine podcast. We hope you'll join us again for our next exciting discussion on maritime technology, business, and policy. In the meantime, please visit us online at www.maritime-executive.com for the latest news and views from around the industry. 